0: You can join with me in in prayer as we go before the Lord right now. Father, as we gather this evening, Father, on this holy holy day, Lord God. Yes. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that 2000 years ago, Father, our Lord intentionally and deliberately, Lord God, walked the streets of that Via Dolorosa went to Calvary, Lord, and went to redeem all who would put their faith and trust in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we have an opportunity, Lord, as a people to come together and to worship you, Lord God, in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, as we open up the Holy Scriptures, Lord, as we commemorate, this great day father we pray that you would speak that every word would come directly from you lord god and we ask father lord god that father that your spirit would extend his hand lord god to reprove to admonish to exhort to convict lord god and to save lord god Father, all of this for the glory of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask you today to open uh, your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Our scripture reading uh, this morning... uh, I keep saying this morning. I'm so used to being here in the morning. I'm all discombobulated. Our scripture reading this evening was the scriptural account of our Lord's crucifixion. Today is a great day because today we get to celebrate our Lord's victory over sin on the cross. And we pause to remember that eventful day. An eventful day it was, right? It's calculated, best calculations of that day was Friday, April 5th. 30 AD, our Lord had been betrayed at this point into the hands of sinful men by Judas, one of the disciples, just by the way as Jesus had told them it would happen. And he endured six phony trials overnight before the chief priests, before Herod, before Pilate. As a matter of fact, the most amazing thing is a sinful man like Pontius Pilate could find no guilt in him, which I think is just incredible. We know that Pilate, when he saw that he couldn't persuade the crowd, gave in and said, okay, we'll crucify him. Before he was crucified, he was to be scourged. He was to be whipped with with the Roman flagellum. And even though our Lord was not convicted of any crime not convicted of any crime he was sentenced to death i've entitled this message the gospel of the cross the gospel of the cross and we're going to find this gospel in the old testament in psalm 22. this is the prophetic psalm of david It's prophecy here. David was a prophet. This is the prophetic psalm of David, and it's written regarding Messiah's death. It's written regarding Christ's death. Now, you should bear in mind, it's written about a thousand years before Christ, and several hundred years before crucifixion was ever invented. As a matter of fact, this is the most quoted psalm in all the Gospels, to the point that they call it like the fifth gospel. And it's originally written, as I said to you, by King David of Israel. It's a psalm of hope. It's a hope in God despite a hopeless situation. But more importantly, it is a prophetic view of Christ on the cross. This is a prophetic view of Christ's eyewitness account. What was Christ seeing on the cross? What was Christ experiencing on the cross? And if you're taking notes you know, we're going to outline this. We're going to go through all of Psalm 22. We're not going to go verse by verse, word by word, like we normally do. But if you were to outline it, it would look like this. In verses 1 through 5, we see Christ's separation from the Father. In verses 6 through 8, we see Christ scorned. In verses 9 through 10, we see Christ's praises. In verses 11 to 21, we see Christ's suffering. In verses 19 to 21, we see Christ's supplication. In 22 to 24, we see Christ's salvation. And lastly, in verses 25 to 31, we see Christ's victory. And I think as we open up the Psalms, you're going to hear and see certain things that are amazingly similar to the gospel accounts. So if we look at Psalm 22, and I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 5. It reads as follows My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the groanings of my uh, are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day but thou dost not answer, and by night but I have no rest. Yet thou art holy. O thou, o thou art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted and were not disappointed. We see right here at the very beginning, right, the famous words of Christ on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We remember the gospel accounts recorded in Aramaic, right? Elohi, Elohi, lama sabatikani. And over a thousand years before Christ uttered these words, these words were penned in the psalm of David. And now we see at this time uh, where Christ was going to hang on the cross for six hours. It is approximately somewhere between 1 and let's say 3 p.m. right now. And as he is about to die, he cries out that famous words, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? Notice one thing about Christ. He is forsaken of God in that moment. And the most amazing thing, the most incredible thing, that our Lord, the sinless one, the Holy One of Israel, should be forsaken at that moment. As a matter of fact, at that time in history, Christ is enduring the penalty for sin. He's enduring the penalty for sin for all who put their faith and trust in Christ. And that penalty and that judgment is being poured out on Christ Himself. The penalty for sin for all those who would come to faith in Christ was put upon Him. And including that penalty was every penalty that every believer in Christ was due. I liken it this way. The penalties for my sins were placed upon him. God incarnate had become that penalty of sin. Jesus Christ, the perfect substitute, and Jesus will give his life a ransom for the many. And in that moment, one of the most glorious truths about Scripture becomes real, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He made him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin on my behalf that we, the believers, might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2 24 says this, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And that healing, by the way, that it's talking, it's also talked about in the prophet Isaiah, that healing is the spiritual healing that we needed to have. We needed to be restored. We needed to be made right. Often wonder why if if people Someone once said to me, why do they call it Good Friday if Jesus Christ died on the cross? And I said, it's called Good Friday because now salvation has come to all people, has come to all all the human race through Christ because Christ became that perfect substitute. He became that perfect sacrifice for sin. You look at verses 2 and 3, it says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer, and by night, but I have no rest, yet thou art holy. Oh, thou art enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And we hear the loneliness of Christ in that moment. Having always enjoyed fellowship with the Father, intimacy with the Father, Christ is now bearing the sins of those he came to redeem. And in that moment of aloneness, by the way, in human form, 100% God, 100% human, in that moment, the weight of sin that is upon him is captured. We hear of his commitment to the Father. Look at verse 3. Yet thou art holy, despite all that's taking place upon him in that very minute. Yet he looks back to the Father and he says, Thou art holy. Notice Jesus isn't saying, Why did you do this to me? Could there be another way? He looks at the Father. He says, Lord, you are holy. And he remembers his commitment to the Father and his perfect submission as he knows there's no other way to make an atonement for sin. In verses 4 and 5, the prophet says, In thee our fathers trusted. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. To thee they cried out, and they were delivered. In thee they trusted, and were not disappointed. And despite the weight of the moment, Jesus himself on the cross reflects On the faithfulness of the fathers of Israel. And I want to call your attention to something. Look at verses four and five. Look at how many times, three times. In thee, he says, our fathers trusted. There's one. They trusted and thou didst deliver. There's two. To thee they cried out and were delivered. In thee they trusted. And we're not disappointed. He is encouraging himself with the faithfulness of God to the fathers of Israel. And how much more faithful will God be to Christ, his very own son? But notice he had to find that encouragement in his aloneness on that moment upon the cross. Look at verses 6 through 8. Hear the words of Jesus as as he's being crucified. But I am a worm, not a man. A reproach of men, despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet thou art he who didst bring me forth from my mother's womb. Look at this, despite the intense pain of being crucified and hanging on the cross for several hours, his body slowly suffocating. Listen, this is not, I want to couch this, this is not a pretty picture. The cross was a brutal picture. The cross was an ugly picture. The cross was a bloody, bloody picture that's going on. Death by crucifixion is caused by suffocation. It uses gravity to eventually cause the person to suffocate. With their arms stretched out, hanging down on the cross, gravity is pulling the body down. The wrists are punctured with nails. The feet are nailed together. And as the gravity pulls it down, eventually the chest cavity begins to fill with fluid. In order to breathe, the person on the cross would have to push up from their feet to take a breath as the hours go on. And eventually the chest cavity, the lungs begin to fill with fluid and ultimately dehydration, blood loss, And suffocation are to occur. It is barbaric. It is as cruel as you can get. As a matter of fact, the first ones to experiment with crucifixion was Nineveh, and they were very famous for capturing their prisoners and impaling them on sharp stakes. Well, when the Romans came to power, they took this to the nth degree. They figured out how can we kill a person and prolong it as much as possible. So you know how you go in some places and you see a nice clean Christ on a cross and He's hanging there? That's not what would have happened. We know that before Christ even went to the cross, He was beaten and whipped. He was scourged, right? Right? And yet, while enduring this pain, Christ looks down from the cross upon the crowd of onlookers. I want you to get this scene. He's, 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 the Bible tells us that He was spat upon. The Bible tells us that He was beaten. He was punched in the face repeatedly. He's hanging on the cross. Blood has to be dripping from everywhere. And as He looks down from the cross, does He find compassion? No. No compassion at all. As, re, as a matter of fact, recorded in the verses we just read, we see what Jesus sees. What does he see? I am a worm. I'm not a man. I'm a reproach of men. Nobody wants to be near him. Nobody wants to uh, befriend him. He's hanging there. And at the feet of the cross are the mockers the enemies who are there to taunt the living Son of God. And in that moment, the prophecy of Isaiah regarding the Christ's suffering is coming true. Isaiah 53.3, He was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem this. We also see this recorded in the gospels in Mark fifteen twenty nine. And Mark gives us the account. Mark fifteen twenty nine. It says and those who were passing were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among them, saying, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 22. It says, Jesus says in verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. They separate their lip, They wag their heads. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver you. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. You see the, the truthfulness of prophecy? A thousand years before the sufferings of Christ. And the eyewitness truth is foretold in this psalm. Charles Spurgeon said this, Sin is worthy of all reproach and contempt. And for this reason, Jesus the sin bearer was given up to be thus unworthily and shamefully entreated. Listen, think about this. They could not even let Jesus die in peace. How cold of a heart do you have to have to see a man suffering and dying and yet to perpetually mock him? Mock him. Making it more and more difficult. Look at verses 9 and 10. Again, Christ. The witness of Christ. Yet thou art he who didst bring forth Uh, bring me forth from the womb. Thou dost make me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon thee I was cast from birth. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. Here we see Christ in the midst of suffering, praising. Let me ask you a question, honestly. Do you praise in the midst of suffering? What's one of the first things that suffering does? Suffering calls attention to us completely. We become the object. If you're like me, you may have said many times, why, God, is this happening to me? Why did this have to happen now? Notice Christ on the cross. In this moment, He encourages Himself and He draws on the praises of God. Here we see his faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness to drink the cup of God's wrath, and by the way, to drink every drop. Every drop. I was sharing with the church yesterday as we looked at Gethsemane, and I shared with the church, it's in Gethsemane. That our battle was won. It's in Gethsemane where the resolution of Christ was won. It's in Gethsemane in the olive press where Christ was crushed. Last night we looked at the account found in Luke 22. You don't have to turn there. But one of the observations it says in Luke 22 that when Jesus left the disciples to go pray, He went into the garden and he knelt down to pray. And we know that as he was praying from the intensity that was surrounding the situation and the pressure as he was was in that olive press, as he's being crushed, as he knows he's going to have to endure the weight of sin of all, the punishment of sin of all who had put faith in Christ. And you know the rest of the story. He began, the pressure was so intense that he began to sweat blood. His capillaries in his sweat glands were bursting from the pressure. And by the way, that is a true thing, by the way. I don't know if you know. This has been made evident in people in battle, in combat situations. It's also occurred with people who were facing executions moments before, hour before their execution. And what happens is the body stresses, the capillaries and the sweat glands begin to burst, and they begin to emit a pinkish kind of a sweat. And here Christ in the garden of Gethsemane is praying with such intensity, such intensity, and he cries out to the Father and he says, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as thou willst. And as I told you in the very beginning, as he goes into the garden, he kneels down to pray. You know, the custom of the Jewish people to pray were to pray standing up, hands raised, eyes looking up at the heaven. But when Jesus went to be alone with the Father, he went on his knees. And then there's a great verse that I think gets overlooked by so many. In that moment, the Scripture says, And Jesus rose up. He went in on his knees. But when he was done, he rose up. And the other gospel accounts say that he finds his disciples sleeping. And he says, come on, let's go. The time is near. And he heads toward calvary our victory was secure our victory was won in that moment when jesus came to the place of full determination to complete the will of god and when he did he rose up and he deliberately and intentionally went to the cross Don't ever let that slip your mind. Don't ever say, well, he was Jesus. He could have done anything. He could have hung on the cross having a cup of coffee. You know, like nothing. No, Jesus was fully man. And what we're reading about here and what the scripture testifies is to the experience of the suffering being fully man. But he was fully God. He was fully God. And we see here Even in the midst of such suffering, how he encourages himself. Yet thou art he who did bring me forth from the womb. Thou didst make me trust when upon my mother's breast. You see, no Gethsemane, no cross. No cross, no resurrection. No resurrection, no hope. No salvation. We see here the love of Christ faithful to God's will. Jesus put it this way. He goes, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my will. That's my food. That's my sustenance. I like the way the writer of Hebrews captures this. This is one of my favorite verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says that we're to look to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. I think sometimes we lose that. He endured the cross. He didn't merely endure the cross. He despised the shame. In other words, as he hung there naked, by the way, he didn't have any cloth. That's, he was naked as he hung there naked, the Son of God, he thought nothing of the sacrifice to be a sacrifice for those who place their faith and trust in Christ. He despised the shame. He thought little of it. He says, not even worth it. And you think of how twisted sometimes we get over the littlest things. In verses 11 to 21, we see in a little bit more detail the sufferings of Christ. Verse 11, be not far from me, trouble is near, for there are none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like pot herds, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw. And thou dost lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me, and they pierce my hands and my feet. And I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them. And from my clothing, they cast lots. This is amazing. Looking out at the crowd close to death. Sensing the hour is near, Jesus cries out again. He compares himself, he compares the gathering and taunting crowds to bulls. Bulls of Bashan. Bashan was an area in southern Judea that was famous for raising the strongest types of bulls. And it is known that when a bull comes upon a strange object, that the bull will circle the object first before attacking with its horns. The scene at the cross is like that. Here was Christ on the cross and the taunters and the mockers circled around Him, spitting at Him, hurling abuse at Him, cursing at Him, taunting Him. They were like the bulls that came and they were about to pounce and they were about to attack. And this is consistent with the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 4 where the prophet states, Surely our griefs He himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. Think for a moment. Notice what Isaiah says. He's speaking here in the context of Israel, but it gets carried out to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says. Whose grief did he bore? He bore our griefs. And whose sorrows did He bore? He bore our sorrows. He also bore our shame. We often don't think about that, right? We think sin, you know, okay, sin's a transaction against God. But with each sin comes a certain amount of shame. That shame that Christ endured was the shame that was for you and I. The taunting, the curses was a result of our sins. The reproach he experienced was because of our unholiness. And I know that many times there's a tendency to feel sorry for Christ for what he experienced as a human being. But that's not the case. That punishment, with all of its shame and all of its disgrace and humiliation, that was for us. For us. Hebrews 2.9 says this, but we do see Him, speaking of Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering death crowned with glory and honor. Now notice this next statement, that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. Verses 14 and 15, we see the worsening physical condition of Christ. Notice what it says, I'm poured out like water. What happened when they thrust the spear into his side? What came out? Water and blood, right? That was all the saturation in the pleural cavity. So when they stabbed him, actually the liquid caused from the dehydration and caused from the accumulation of his slowing breathing comes pouring out. He says, I am, all my joints, all my joints are out. Dislocation. At this point, his shoulders probably were dislocated at least in that moment because of the constant heaving up and down that he had to be able to do. In verse 15, he says, my strength is dried up like potsherds. At cracked clay pots, right? No paint, nothing. My tongue cleaves to my jaw. Thou dost lay me in the dust. You could, you could see in the words what is going on in his physical body as he begins to dehydrate, right? And notice what he says, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. And there's something about the dogs here, right? In, in, in first century Jerusalem and Palestine, wild dogs roamed the street. And if somebody would die in the street, well, the dogs would search for them, or if there was a dying animal, and that would be their, their meal. So wild dogs. He compares the those that are at the foot of the cross to those wild dogs that can't wait to pounce on the carcass. But I want to call your attention to something in verse 16. The second part of verse 16, which is pretty amazing. It says, they pierce my hands and my feet. Now, that may seem like something that's not so obvious. But here's what it is. That word pierced means to puncture. It means to puncture this is a thousand years, several hundred years before the advent of crucifixion. And he talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. And here we see that it just flows perfectly with the scriptural detail, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Isaiah 53.5 but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquity the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed just like the other verse in our isaiah he was pierced through what not for him he was pierced through not because he was a criminal he was pierced through not for any other reason. he was pierced through for our transgression. He was wounded for our iniquity. The prophet, the prophet Zechariah, using speaking of this word pierce in Zechariah 1210 said this: "I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look to me. notice this: they will look to me." whom they have pierced. Speaking of a future day of Israel. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That word pierced only means punctured or penetrated. There's no one else in biblical history that this could be applied to other than Christ. And here's another thing. I mentioned to you that the dogs surround them. Dogs don't pierce. Dogs tear. Right? They tear. Only nails and swords pierce. And here he speaks of his hands and his feet being pierced through. Look at verses 19 through 21. And Here we see Christ's supplication. Oh, by the way, if you look at verse 18, 17 and 18, he says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And the New Testament records that specifically in John 19, 23 and 24. Are you seeing something here? Are you seeing how this just can't be a great writer who wrote something? That a thousand years before, this psalm was written when Christ was born. You know, when when he was already born, this psalm was written. The prophetic accuracy of God. Look at verses 19 and 21. But thou, O Lord, be not far off. O thou my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver me from the sword and my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. Here at this moment, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is found here in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden... God gave a prophecy. He said the seed of the woman, who is Christ, would deliver a death blow to Satan. And in the process, Satan would bruise his heel. Satan is the dog referred to in verses 20 and 21. He is the lion referred to, consistent with 1 Peter 5.8. You know when Peter says that the That Satan roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he has devoured? Satan is the lion that roars. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I've been over the past, I don't know how many months, I've been talking to so many believers, many of whom that are passing through really difficult times. And I was talking to somebody and I said, man, the lion has roared. And I meant that referring to Satan. The lion is roaring. He's roaring. And when you think about a lion, right? When he's walking through and he's, he's coming upon his prey or someone is, is threatening his territory, what does he do? He roars to intimidate. He roars to say, get away from here if you know what's good for you. Our enemy is roaring today. And we just can't seem to get enough of it, right? Roaring, everything is intimidating, intimidating, intimidating. But I'll tell you what, there's another lion. It's the lion of Judah. And when he roars, that other lion better run. Because he is none other than Jesus Christ. Look at verses 22 to 24. We're going to see this marked transition now. He says, I will tell thy name to my brethren. Here's Christ speaking of salvation. I will tell thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all descendants of Israel. For he has not despised uh, nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help... He heard. Notice that all of the sudden, now Christ encourages. Here in this moment, the transition of Christ's words in verses nineteen through twenty-one. His prayers are now being answered. Christ shifts from petition to praise. He has endured. He has submitted fully to the will of the Father. He has accomplished all that the Father had for him. And verses 22 through 25 speak of the risen Christ who overcame this suffering and overcame this death. And his prayer from verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, is now answered. He praises God. Charles Spurgeon said of this, the transition is very marked. From a horrible tempest, all is changed into calm. The darkness of Calvary at length passed away from the face of nature and from the soul of the Redeemer and beholding the light of His triumph and its future results, the Savior smiled." i'll tell you something on the cross as his death was impending you could take this statement to the bank he was not afraid he was not nervous he didn't have second thoughts because he knew he had fulfilled the father's will He drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath and now as death encroaches upon him rather than fear and power, he rejoices at the prospect that soon salvation will be offered to him. Everyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, we're here 2,000 years later because Christ was faithful indeed on that cross. We're here 2,000 later because He won the battle in Gethsemane. We're here 2,000 years later because on the cross, He never deviated from the will of God, but He drank that cup down to the last drop. You see, all those who are in Christ, those who place their faith and trust in Christ, we stand in awe of Christ. Do we not? What a, what a shame it is for people who would call themselves a Christian who don't even give Christ a second thought. And when we stop and when we think of what Christ has done for us, how can we not but be in awe? How can we not but feel indebted? How can we not but glorify our Savior who paid such a penalty? for us. There is nothing higher to the believer. There's nothing greater to the believer. There's nothing or no one we would love more. Our lives are changed because of the salvation that was accomplished on the cross. That's why it is a good Friday. The judgment that was due us was poured out on the sinless Christ. He made himself a ransom, a substitute, a sacrifice for sin for all who would put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. And in doing so, he satisfied the justice and the judgment of God. Listen, believers no longer fear death. Believers no longer worry about regarding their sins. Believers have been born from above. They have been born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. Believers have a new heart and new desires. Believers are not the same. Believers have been transformed. By the power of Christ. Look at the remaining text. Here we see Christ's victory, verses 25 through 31. From thee comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember to return to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And they will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has Performed it. Oh man, I wish I could go through every verse in this last portion, but I'll just say this. As you look at verses 27 and 20, uh, 28, they are correct because of Christ's sacrifices. All the nations of the world have come to Christ from the four corners of the earth. Many have heard and have repented and come to faith in him. Aren't you glad that Christianity isn't limited to Americans? Christianity isn't limited to white people, black people, red people, orange people, green people, Sartreuse people. That salvation is not limited only to the Asians. What started as a small group of followers in first century Palestine has been opened just as Jesus said, that all the nations would know, all the nations would come. I often think of that great day, that great day in in, in glory when, when we're translated, when we're taken up in glory. And there we are before the throne of God and we look around and we see Asians and we see Africans and we see Westerners and we see black and we see white and we see red and we see every nation, every tribe, everyone that is spoken about In that place, why? Because Christ was faithful to the will of the Father. Every nation, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language shall praise the Lord God Almighty. And it shall be done just as Christ said. And notice, despite the harshest attempts in the history of mankind to eliminate the church, we're still here. There are Christians in Afghanistan. There are Christians in North Korea. There are Christians in China. There are Christians in the most remotest parts. They're not Christian by heritage. I have a missionary friend of mine. It's in Cambodia bringing the gospel to the Cambodians. And there's a small group of believers, eight, ten believers in a little village. They are everywhere. The sacrifice of Christ has made that possible. And we are here tonight because of the faithful declaration of the gospel that has gone before us. 2,000 years later, we're commemorating and celebrating this glorious victory. My heart grieves, honestly, my heart grieves that not many churches meet on Good Friday. I think it's one of the saddest things in the world. How do we not, as believers, come together to celebrate the glorious victory that Christ made on the cross? And I'll tell you what, we continue to declare his faithfulness to a generation to come. So, as we begin to close, the Apostle Peter wrote these words 1 Peter 1, 18 through 21. And he writes this to a church that's suffering, a church that's being persecuted. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God." Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God? He wrote this to people who are being thrown before lions, who are forced into the gladiator games, who are being taken as slaves. And he says, You were not redeemed with anything perishable. But you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So tonight you've heard of the sacrifice. You've heard of the price paid for redemption. You've heard of the grace and the mercy of Christ. And you just heard the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The doctrine of propitiation. Christ became a sacrifice and He satisfied the wrath of God. Christ paying the penalty for your sin so that all who would believe would become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So you've heard. The next thing you need to do is act. Perhaps tonight upon hearing the message you realize why Christ had to die on the cross if you understand the necessity of Christ dying on the cross, if you understand that sin had to be paid for, if you understand that this prophecy of Christ on the cross could only have had a supernatural origin, let me share something. Then you understand the message of the gospel. See, there's passive obedience, and there's active obedience. Christ calls every person, to active obedience. Now is the time to get right with God. Now. Scripture calls you to repent simply means to turn from your sin and turn to God. Trusting yourself completely and wholly to Christ and Christ alone. And Don't make any deals with God. Lord, I'll do it next week, I'll do it after I get this job, I'll do it in a year from now when I finish school. Don't make the deals. Christ and Christ alone. Throw yourself on the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ and trust yourself completely and wholly to Jesus Christ. Those things being true, then I call you to trust Christ alone. Listen, I'm going to share something with you. There is not enough good works you could do to please God, and there are not enough millenniums for you to do them in. You understand all of our, all of our righteous works are as filthy rags before the God before God. There is not enough time nor is there enough works, but the blessing of salvation, the glory of the cross is that If you just come and you trust yourself to Christ, you will be saved. Listen, Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was this super pumped up guy on a mission and he was determined and he said, oh, nobody's ever going to change my mind. Listen, that had nothing to do with it. Jesus came to give himself a sacrifice for sin. And we all have sin. We're born into it. We're contaminated. All you have to do is put on the news and you'll see the fruit of sin in this world. We need to be made right. And only by faith can we know salvation. Christ came not only to forgive you of your sins, but Christ came that you might have new life. That the bondage of sin, the things that held you in that bondage, will be broken. And you will have a new life. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man, if any person, is in Christ, he is a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. The Apostle John put it this way. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Some people get hung up, well, you don't know what I did. I don't care what you did. If you confess your sins, John says... He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I call on you tonight to trust Christ alone by putting your confidence in Jesus' finished and complete work on the cross, coming through Christ to the Father, turning from sins and turning to Christ. Will you do that on Good Friday? You might say, Pastor, what does that look like? Do I have to join the church? Do I have to go through a ceremony thing? You know, we're going to cut up a chicken and sprinkle the blood on you. What, what does this look like? This is what it looks like. You acknowledge you're a sinner before Almighty God. You realize that you stand before a holy God. I don't care if you've been raised in the church. I don't care if you've never been to a church or you've been to a different kind of church. All of that is moot. All that matters is in this moment of honesty that you come before the Father and say, Father, I cry to you for mercy. Is there forgiveness for me at the cross? Because if you ignore this offer of grace, there is a terrifying judgment that awaits. Christ calls everyone to repent. Turn and repent simply means do a 180. That's all it means. You are are heading south. Now you're going to head to the true north. Repent. Turn from your sins. Leave them behind. Cry out to Christ and say, have mercy, Lord. You know me. You know I'm a wretched sinner. You know that, Lord God, that I have all these problems in my life. and, And Father, you know I can't rid myself. And I hear your voice. And you cry out and you say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the word of God says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out." In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And this is for believers in Christ. People who have been born again. With the bread symbolizing the broken body of Jesus Christ and the cup symbolizing the shed blood of the new covenant. The scripture tells us that before we partake of the Lord's table that we're to examine ourselves. And if there is any hidden sin, if there's any unconfessed sin in your life to confess it quietly and privately between you and God. So let's bow our heads and take a moment and confess your sins before the Lord, before we approach the table of grace.